this is C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. This week, our guest is Ben Shapiro, podcast host and editor emeritus of The Daily Wire. In his new book, Authoritarian Moment, he argues the progressive left is pushing an authoritarian agenda in America. He's interviewed by nationally syndicated radio talk show host, Eric Metaxas. And I have the privilege and the joy uh, of interviewing Ben Shapiro about his new book. It is called The Authoritarian Moment. Ben, I've got to ask you the most obvious question, but it strikes me as uh, not unimportant. Your title, The Authoritarian Moment, it strikes me as a chilling. Uh, um, why is your book titled The Authoritarian Moment? Uh, the reason that it's titled The Authoritarian Moment is because what we are really experiencing is is a this moment in time, which is sort of unique in American history, the rise of a militant authoritarian movement inside the United States that seems to have essentially taken over all of our institutions. And I, I wanted to tackle the institutional takeover because I think that when people think of authoritarianism, they tend to think of it in terms of pure government, just government taking control of everything. But the point that I'm making with the title, that, that it's a moment, is that we are all experiencing it together. It is not just that the government has decided to take control over all of our lives, because obviously that's not true. The government is not controlling every aspect of our life, thank God. We live in a free country, at least for the moment. It's really more about the social authoritarianism that we see all around us, uh, the, the kind of water that we're all swimming in, and that we can all feel on a day-to-day level from our peers, from our neighbors, on social media, from our bosses, every time we turn on the TV. Uh, that sort of, of milieu is creating uh, a feeling of repression and oppression in the United States that I think is being felt by a broad majority of Americans. And again, I think that it is a unique product of the time we live in. Um, I think the older one is, the more horrifying the current moment is and the more obviously uh, un-American it is to feel the way many people feel. I, I think a lot of younger people, just because they don't, they, they don't, they don't have the history that this may seem normal, or they don't understand how unprecedented it is for such a wide swath of Americans to suddenly feel as though they have to be careful what they say. Um, in in the book, you 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 talk about how. Some people have tried to silence what you call the majority. I want to ask you about that. But before that, uh, in the beginning of the book, you talk about how we we have to, first of all, define uh, who are the authoritarians. A lot of people um, on the political left or in the the mainstream media, which has become uh, left mostly, they say that the authoritarian impulse is exclusively on the right, they cite what happened on January 6th. How, how do you answer those folks? I'm not going to pretend that there aren't authoritarians on the right. There are clearly people who don't like democratic processes on the right, and they, they represent a very, very small minority of right-wingers in the country, and they also have no institutional support. When I define authoritarianism, there's a, a very well-known sort of phenomenon that the left talks about a lot in terms of right-wing authoritarianism, the idea being that if you're a very rule-following person uh, and that if you wish to compel others to follow those rules, this is what makes you an an authoritarian from the right. But there's a a lesser-known phenomenon that is left-wing authoritarianism. And for a very long time, social scientists suggested there was no such thing as left-wing authoritarianism. There are no people on the left who are authoritarian. Left-wing ideology was not connected in any way to authoritarianism. Now, you might say to yourself, that, that doesn't make any sense. We know that there are plenty of left-wing authoritarians the planet over, ranging from Cuba to China to the Soviet Union. But because there are so many social scientists who lean to the left, 
there was a, a market attempt to avoid defining authoritarianism broadly enough to allow for the possibility of a left-wing authoritarianism. Well, after you know, several decades of this, there was a, a political scientist uh, who sort of defined it, and he gave it sort of three basic components. One was this idea of uh, anti-conventionalism, the idea that everybody who is not of my moral standard is somehow inferior and lesser. And this obviously exists on the left. The idea is that if you don't believe, like many members of the left, this makes you a bigot. You're a racist, sexist, bigot, homophobe, cis-normative jerk. And, and this means that your perspective is somehow lesser. You don't belong. You're not fit company for anyone else. Then there is a second element, and that is top-down censorship. The idea from the left is that you ought to be censored because of this. We are going to use the mechanisms of power to shut you up in order to protect everybody else. We definitely, definitely have to shut you up. And then third, there's an element of revolutionary aggression that is sort of connected to left-wing authoritarianism. The idea here being that the institutions are responsible for all of our ills and they need to be torn down. Well, the, the sort of infusion of all of these things into traditional Democratic Party ideology uh, and now the, the sort of institutional capture that has happened, all the institutions have to be remade. We have to have a reset of all of our institutions. The idea that you needed to be wished into the cornfield if you don't believe the way they do. The, the notion that we, ha we have these institutions of power and they need to censor you. They need to fire you or they need to kick you off of Facebook or they need to reduce your reach in order so that good and decency may thrive. All of these are aspects of left-wing authoritarianism. It's fascinating to me, um, you know, cultural memory is so important. Uh, and anybody who's aware of what happened in the 50s, uh, the blacklist in Hollywood, automatically, and I think this is, this is carried through the decades, we tend to think of this kind of behavior of blacklisting um, as fundamentally un-American and typically used against uh, anyone on the left. But it seems what you're describing in the book uh, and what many of us have observed in America in the last few years, it's precisely the opposite. But there's scarcely any references to the McCarthyist uh, blacklisting that happened in the 50s. It's as if that's just wiped away. But there, there are parallels. Oh, for sure. I mean, I, I think that the reason for that goes back to this very famous essay by Herbert Marcuse, who is this intellectual at Berkeley and member of the Frankfurt School, who suggested that in order to preserve democracy, decency, liberalism, there had to be something called repressive tolerance. He said the problem with tolerance is that tolerance allows bad opinions to be tolerated. And if bad opinions are tolerated, those bad opinions might win. And so what we really require is repressive tolerance. We have to repress certain views in order to forward tolerance. And he explicitly says right-wing views are intolerant and terrible, and therefore they need to be repressed. So when you repress them, you are actually doing so on behalf of tolerance. Now, that may seem like an Orwellian twisting of the language, but it has become sort of the, the go-to argument by so many people in society these days that in order to protect from the evil predations of ideas that bother you, we have to silence you. In order so that you don't offend somebody or microaggress them, in order so that their feelings aren't hurt, we have to, we have to silence you in some way. And that's tied, I think, more deeply to uh, a very changed notion of what identity amounts to in the United States and in the West at this time. It used to be that identity was sort of formed in coordination with the polis, the body politic. It was, it was formed in coordination with the rules of the society. The way that you civilized a child, and we use the word civilized to mean this, is you took a child from essentially barbarism, and then you civilized them to society's institutions. They became a good member, a civilized member of society. Now the idea is that when you raise a child, it's there, you have to find a way to help them find their authentic self. That authenticity, citizenship, 
All of that is to be found within. And if a whole group of people say, well, you know what, we don't like the way you're acting, then this is an infringement on the liberty of their identity. Their identity has actually been threatened by the fact that some people disapprove of the way that they're acting or of the things that they're saying. And so disapproval actually becomes an act of violence. And then you require institutions to prevent such acts of violence by cramming down this sort of censorship. Okay, so what you're talking about for people who aren't listening to every syllable uh, is this idea that uh, somebody might today say, because of my religious views, because I'm a, a serious Christian or, or a serious Jew or a serious Muslim, I have certain views about sexuality, for example. What has changed, as I hear you uh, describing it, is that that kind of dissent uh, is not only something that somebody on the left or the social left might frown on, but feels the need to cancel, feels the need to, to force people uh, to be somehow unable in our civil society to hold those views, which somebody has suddenly dated, uh, uh, somebody has suddenly characterized as outdated and offensive. That's right. We, we live in an era of what some called expressive individualism, where, where human beings feel that they are owed a certain amount of applause from the world for however they choose to live their life. And if people refuse to give that to them, then those people have aggressed upon them. And that aggression, in turn, justifies the kind of authoritarian measures that, that we've seen, that people have to be silenced, people have to be forced into compliance. Sometimes this does take the form of governmental pressure. I mean, we've seen, obviously, some very high-profile cases in the United States of people who simply say, I don't wish to bake a cake for a same-sex wedding because I'm a religious Christian. Happy to bake a cake for anybody, but I'm not going to bake a cake for a same-sex wedding. This person has, in Colorado, uh, Jack Phillips, he's been persecuted by the state of Colorado. He's, he's been taken to the Supreme Court. He's going to end up in the Supreme Court again. I mean, there's an overt attempt to suppress his ability to live life as he sees fit. If we're going to live in a country together, at a certain point, we're going to have to say, you get to live your life how you want to live it, and you get to think what you want. And I get to live my life how I live it, and I get to think what I want. And we, we're going to have to take the perspective that you, the, the sort of John Stuart Mill perspective at the very least, that you can wave your fist around until you hit me in the face. But the definition of actual harm has to be re, re Vivified, right? Actual harm is if I harm you. It is not if I make you feel bad. It is not if you feel bad about how I think about the world. Unfortunately, I think that distinction has gone away. Well, it's my contention, and I say it on my own uh, radio program and in public speeches, that I, I believe most Americans know what you've just described. They understand that it's preposterous uh, in America to be able to try to get people to think a certain way, to force them to think a certain way. I think most Americans understand this, but it's what we might call the cultural elites that have had great success in enforcing this new idea, which which I would say is not only un-American, but somehow anti-American. So how do you define freedom? In other words, what, what are the parameters here so that somebody tuning in right now would say, well, I don't know. If, if somebody has views I don't like, why shouldn't I be able to uh, persecute them or marginalize them. What, what are the what are the parameters? What are the limits of of that kind of behavior? Where is it civil and American, and when does it become authoritarian? So when, when we talk here, really, what we're talking here is about when is cancellation appropriate? When is cancel culture appropriate? And my basic idea of when cancel culture is appropriate, when somebody should, for example, lose their job, is when the perspectives that they hold actually impact the job that they are doing in a direct way. If your plumber holds a view that you don't like, you're not, you really don't have, or you shouldn't, as a moral human being, say that your plumber doesn't get to be the plumber at your house because he voted for a person different than you. If, however, let's say, for example, that you work in the political sphere the way that I do, 
Uh, and let's say that your perspective is that you are a white supremacist. It's perfectly fair for people to say, I don't wish to engage with that person because of their viewpoints, because that directly impacts what I am doing for a living. Because we've gotten rid of that distinction, there is now this quest to basically turn everything private in, in terms of viewpoint into something public. So now we dig up the actual Facebook posts of your plumber and try to ruin his life, his career, and his business if we don't like what he has to say on Facebook. Uh, that, that's a mistake, and it's going to lead to, to some really dark results because most people have posted something that is uh, cancelable on Facebook or on Twitter. And this becomes particularly egregious when you see institutions of power doing this sort of stuff, especially because it is not as, as sort of, uh, I would say, neutral, morally neutral as I'm making it out to be. What, what you very often have are corporations that have a specific point of view that they wish mirrored. And if that is not mirrored, even if it has nothing to do with your job, then you could find yourself in serious trouble. So if you are working at a corporation and it's the middle of the Black Lives Matter movement last year and everyone around you is posting a black square on their Instagram page and you don't post a black square on your Instagram page and some of your colleagues go to your boss and say it's offensive that you didn't post a black square on your Instagram page, you could find yourself in the boss's office and maybe losing your job because you didn't mirror the priorities of the, of the people who work at your company. And usually it's a small minority of people who work at your company who actually care. I, I think this is the... the point that, that is most relevant here is that when you look at the, the institutions of power and how they've changed, the renormalization of the institutions, which is, is a term uh, that, that's used by, again, social scientists and, and folks like uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb, the, the, the idea that you can take an institution and change the entire orientation of the institution with basically 20% of the people who work there doing all the work and everybody else in the middle just surrendering, that has led to some pretty radical results from these organizations. Um. Uh, this brings to mind uh, at least two things. The first thing, um, when when people started talking about hate speech, I'm not quite sure when it was, or hate crimes, uh, that's to me, that was a dividing line. I thought to myself, if I murder you, Ben Shapiro, because you're a Jew and I hate Jews, how is that different than if I murder you because you're white or because I was just crazy and I wanted to murder someone what does that have to do with anything when we're talking about the law, right? Um, that struck me as, a, 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 as, as an odd moment in the culture when why someone committed murder or committed a crime uh, mattered. Uh, obviously, it matters to some extent in, in some ways, but really in terms of just the legality of it, it, it just struck me as fascinating that that somehow, I don't know how, would enter the law. Um, and it seems that that kind of a crossing of a line uh, paved the way for what we're talking about. I mean, I think that's right. I, th I think that one of the things that, that's happened, and you can see it particularly with regard to that actual legal debate, is that there's a very good First Amendment case that, that hate crimes should not actually be a category, uh, that the government should not have a specific level of prosecution for a, uh, for a murder based on hatred of, of race. Because again, that kind of goes to individual perspective that may be ugly, but is not barred by the First Amendment. But here is the reason why that push succeeded and has widely been accepted across the United States. And that is because people have, the, have adopted the perverse view that if somebody misuses a right, the right itself is bad. If an individual right is misused by somebody, that means that the right is itself to blame. Uh, the, the individual right is to blame. And so we have to subsume the individual right in order so that people shouldn't misuse it. So you see this happening 
right now with regard to social media. There are people who are misusing freedom of speech in order to post stuff on social media that maybe some folks on the left don't like. Or maybe they're actually abusing it by actually posting false or defamatory or racist information. There's a hard push to curtail your ability to post on social media without some overlord looking over your shoulder because the idea is that the individual right itself is the problem. And this is actually a core component of left-wing authoritarianism. Again, this goes to the the top-down censorship. The idea that individual rights are themselves the threat is an inherent part of so many kind of left-wing authoritarian ideologies like critical race theory. The idea that individual rights are a threat to the utopian regime that we want to bring about, and therefore individual rights have to go away. In fact, individual rights are merely a guise for hierarchies of power that are baked into the cake and designed to discriminate against other people. That is an anti-American philosophy. Well, we're talking about cultural Marxism. Uh, you referenced the, the Frankfurt School. Uh, what strikes me as fascinating is that these ideas, which are, are, are pretty much relegated to the academy, have finally over the decades uh, trickled down, so to speak, into mainstream culture. In other words, the idea that if I don't post a BLM square uh, on my social media, the idea that somebody might look at me funny, at, in any previous generation, that would have immediately struck people as fascist, uh, the kind of thing the Nazis did. If you don't say Heil Hitler loud enough, you're suspicious. That kind of thing most Americans knew uh, instinctively, whether they'd heard of Gramsci or, 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 or Marcuse. They knew instinctively that that was deeply un-American. What do you think has changed that many Americans, particularly younger Americans, don't seem immediately to recognize that as a threat to American-style self-government? So I think that a lot of Americans, yeah, because they've grown up so kind of fat and happy and with these rights in their back pocket, they, they fail to understand the importance of the rights. Uh, and this is why you see polls, poll after poll, really, of young people on college campuses talking about whether they would complain to administration if a, professor, if a professor or a fellow student said something offensive, whether they believe that certain speakers should be barred from campus on the basis of perspective. I mean, these are very basic sort of First Amendment notions. Uh, and yet a huge number of young Americans just don't believe in them or believe that economic rights, which are individual in nature, really don't adhere to people. That, that really the, the collective is in charge of how economics distributes particular resources. I think some of that comes from ignorance of any other system. If you grew up in America, then you've never seen how any other system works. And so you tend to have a warmer view of other systems, especially when you've been taught from youth all of the flaws of America and very little of its greatness. Um, but beyond that, I think that what most Americans have been taught uh, is this idea that their duty in life is to find their authentic self and anybody who pats them on the back about their authentic self is good and anybody who does not is bad and needs to be silenced. And what we really need more than anything else is validation from the people around us. Validation is the key. And so if people don't validate you, if life doesn't validate you, if the economy doesn't validate you, if the job market doesn't validate you, that is a problem with the systems of power. It is never a problem with you because your authentic self is who you were meant to be. And so anybody who threatens that has to be silenced. It's not that we were guaranteed life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It's that we were guaranteed happiness in our own authentic identity as defined by us. And so we have redefined biology to meet this. We've redefined economics to meet this. We're now redefining the nature of government and free speech in order to meet this. Uh, and it's really, really dangerous. Um, uh, the, the book, of course, is titled The Authoritarian Moment. And uh, there's something chilling and yet hopeful in the title of The Authoritarian Moment because it strikes me that an authoritarian moment uh, could be sort of uh, the high point of the wave. There's a moment, uh, and then suddenly, uh, by God's grace, enough Americans wake up to the significance of what's happening and begin to move against it. Um, 
I can't help thinking, not least because I wrote a book on Dietrich Bonhoeffer and the Nazis, the parallel uh, that we're experiencing now. There was a moment in Germany in the 30s when people had the, the, uh, the freedom uh, to push back against what they saw, but they didn't recognize where it was going. They hadn't had the, uh, they didn't have the historical reference to understand where it might go. Uh, German leaders had been basically good. So they didn't act when they had that moment to act. Uh, I wonder if that's the same today in America. When, when somebody starts putting cultural pressure, you don't realize how horrific it is, how anti-American it is, and where it's going. And so you say nothing for now. Uh, and then the question is, will you be able to say something tomorrow or will you be totally silenced? So when you say the authoritarian moment in the title, uh, do you have hope that some Americans are waking up to where we are? I think a lot of Americans are waking up to where we are. And I think that the point that you're making here is a, is a really important one, because obviously, if you look at German history, the consolidation of power in the central government predates Hitler. Right? The Enabling Act is, is kind of the final step in, in Hitler's ascent and in, in his complete takeover of power. But Germany was essentially operating as a quasi-dictatorship from about 1930. And because people who were leading the government were not nearly as threatening or dangerous as Hitler, it was basically given the go-ahead by, by huge swaths of the population and all the major political parties. The, that sort of thing is, is pretty common in human history, that the instrument of destruction is, is made available, and then it's only when somebody truly dangerous takes it up that, that things become crystal clear to folks. Right now, the instruments of destruction are being made available. I mean, all of the institutions of the society are being weaponized on behalf of a particular point of view. Right now, the left likes that particular point of view. There's nothing that says that the left is going to get to wield that power. Uh, and, uh, and so even the left, I think, should be a little bit scared of the sort of power that's, that's being wielded. As far as the, the sort of blowback, I think that's begun. I, I think that you, you're seeing it in the broad national movement against, for example, critical race theory. Uh, I think that you are seeing it in the, in the newfound willingness to kick back against corporations that are involving themselves in sort of uh, political predation and political cramdowns. Uh, I think that there, there is a burgeoning movement, even among sort of traditional liberals, against some of this stuff. I've said before that I think that the future of the country is not going to rely on the, the hard work that conservatives do. I don't even think the future of the country lies with the radical left. I think the, the question of where the country lies and where it goes going forward is going to lie with traditional liberals who may disagree with the right on sort of goals, but agree with the right on means and may agree with the radical left on their sort of utopian goals, but disagree with the left on the radical left's willingness to subsume individual rights on behalf of power. If liberals say to the radical left, listen, we agree with you on things like nationalized health care and higher taxes and redistribution of income. Like we agree with all of those things, but you don't get to destroy individual rights. You don't get to get people fired for no reason. You don't get to destroy people's lives simply because they disagree. Then we can still have a country. If the liberals say to the right, listen, you guys are just so wrong that we're going to move along with the left because it is more important that we reach utopia than that we preserve anything like an open society. Then things are going to get really ugly really fast. And it is not going to end with the with the complete subjugation of the right. It's going to end with, frankly, separation by the right. And you're, you're seeing more and more talk about this over time as, as people in, for example, Southeast, there's a recent poll that showed that people in Southeast states, which tend to be obviously much more red, 66% of, of Republicans in those states are saying, listen, we're, you know, we'd be happy to see it if you guys keep pushing this. That, that sentiment is only going to get more widespread the harder the left pushes and the more that the middle collapses. Um, your first chapter is called How to Silence the Majority. Um, talk about that, because a, a lot of people are wondering how this happened. You know, we you can hear about things like the long march through the institutions, which has been happening. 
But suddenly, it seems recently, uh, people are feeling it. They're feeling that we're being silenced now. Ten years ago, 20 years ago, that was in the, the precincts of the academy. Uh, it was not something I had to take seriously in Main Street America. What happened? So the, the answer is that the rudest and the loudest can triumph with a very small minority of, of any group. Uh, if you have, there have been studies that demonstrate that if you have a group of people, all it takes is about 20% of people to renormalize the entire group. And, and here's how it works. Here's an example. So let's say that you have a family of four and one of the kids in the family, let's say the daughter, decides that she's a vegan now. So she comes home and she says to mom, listen, mom, you know, you can cook whatever you want for dinner, but I need like a separate vegan meal. Well, now mom has a decision to make. She can either cook two meals, one for the other three members of the family and the vegan meal, uh, meal for, for the daughter, or she can just cook one big vegan meal for the rest of the family. So she says, you know what? I don't have time for this. It's really not that big a deal. We'll go vegan for tonight. No, no problem. So she goes vegan for the family. So now you've had one daughter who held fast to a particular position and everybody else in the family is now going along with this particular position. Now let's say that there's a neighborhood barbecue and the neighborhood barbecue involves five families. And each of these families has four members. So now this family says, listen, our daughter, she's vegan. We've been eating vegan because, you know, it's important to her. So if we come to the barbecue, we're just going to need a vegan option. And the host of the barbecue says, well, you know, and, you know, I understand people want meat, but is it really that big deal? Like, do I really want the schlep of going over to the market and buying the meat and having to do it? Let's just do it all vegan. It's fine. So they do vegan for the entire block. So now you have 20 people who have been renormalized by one person originally. All it takes is this sort of creeping move where you take a, a very intransigent and loud minority who's unwilling to move and a bunch of people who are sort of willing to go along to get along just to be nice. And, and that's what's happened through so many of our institutions, virtually all of our institutions, in fact, a very loud minority who basically threaten people in the middle by saying, we're going to come after you. We will call you racist and sexist. We will try and destroy you. We will boycott you if you don't just go along. And listen, you're just being nice. If you go along, the truth is you're being nice. You really should just be quiet. You really should just be cordial. And there's been kind of a process here, too. And you can see it on college campuses. It went from be cordial, just be nice. You know, don't say anything that might offend anybody else. Right. On, on matters of, of any political debate, there are going to be things that offend people. Facts tend to offend people. So if you're talking about race and then you talk about differential crime statistics, people on campus will say, don't, don't mention that. You know, it kind of offends people when you talk about that. Or if you talk about sexual values, for example, and you happen to be a traditionalist, don't, you know, just don't go there because it kind of offends people. And do we, can't we just have a nice dinner? Like, just be cordial. OK, that turns pretty quickly into speech is is violence. You, you, your form of speech is not just offending me, it is, it is aggressing me. You are doing something that harms me. And so now it's not just a request that you be nice because so many of us are being nice. I mean, why can't you be nice too? Obviously, you're an aggressive person. Your speech is a form of violence. When I went to Berkeley and I spoke about the value of the First Amendment, people were literally outside chanting that. They were literally chanting speech is violence. And then finally, you get to the third step, which is silence is violence, right? And here, the idea is that it's not enough for you just to shut up. Right. You were supposed to shut. Step two was shut up and listen. Right. Step one was just be nice. Step two was shut up and listen. Right. Shut up. You don't know. Just shut up and listen. And then step three was you must mirror what we are saying and become part of the mob. Or obviously you're part of the opposition. Right? It's completely binary. Either you are, are going to mirror what we say or we are going to take you for the opposition and we are going to destroy you. And it's a step by step slow process where each step of the process doesn't feel particularly egregious. Each step of the process doesn't feel like a lot is being asked of you. But just like boiling the lobster. By the time you hit the end of it, the lobster is boiled. I think a lot of people, I think the, the, the reason uh, so many Americans voted for Trump and why so many Americans really love him and have this emotional connection with Trump is because he seemed uh, in his way uh, to fundamentally understand 
what was happening and was willing to fight against it. Uh, that to me is the problem today is that a lot of the people who want to be seen as civil, uh, th they don't understand that there is a time when somebody's shooting at your head and you, you need to take that seriously. Trump seems to have taken that at least somewhat seriously, more seriously than most in the Republican party. Where, where do you think this goes today? Where are our politics today? Because I think your average American uh, who's maybe not listening to a conversation like this or doesn't have the time to worry about who was Herbert Marcuse, they just know this is horrifying. This is fundamentally un-American. Uh, maybe they can't explain why. But if somebody is fighting for these basic values, uh, whether in a ham-fisted way or not, they want uh, they want to champion that person uh, as a leader. I mean, I think there's a lot of truth to that. I, I've said before that I think that to a certain extent, Donald Trump was basically a lot of America's pulsating middle finger uh, to to an elite establishment that had basically said, you need to sit down and shut up and we scorn you and we think you're a bunch of rubes and idiots. And, and Trump didn't think that they were rubes and idiots. And not only that, Trump was punching a lot of the people that they want punched. And many, as I've said many times over the course of sort of the Trump era, Trump was a hammer. And when he hit a nail, it was really satisfying. Sometimes you'd hit a kitten and it wasn't nearly as satisfying. But there, there are a lot of people who were just thrilled with the fact that Trump actually would hit the nail where so many Republican politicians in the past had sort of said, you know what, you're right. You keep saying I'm uncivil. You know what, you're right. I'm just going to concede the argument. And then at least I won't be perceived as a not nice guy. What the Republican Party needs to do, what conservatives need to do, and frankly, what Americans need to do more generally, is not make the mistake of identifying civility with conciliation. They're not the same thing. You can be civil and you can also stand your ground. You can say, listen, you know, I'm not going to use bad words. I'm not going to insult you. All I'm going to do is I'm just going to stand my ground and say no. Right? Our refusal is a big weapon. And I'm saying no, and I don't acquiesce to this. And if you are calling me a racist, maybe it's because you're a fool. Maybe it's because you have no evidence and this is the last resort of a scoundrel. And I'm not going to do this. If, you know, if, if people begin to do that, whether politically or socially, that's going to make an awful big difference. And I think that you're starting to see this reflected in some of the politicians who are sort of rising to the fore on the Republican side of the aisle. Obviously, the one that comes to mind is Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, who's been quite militant uh, in standing up to the media. And he's not rude and he's not vulgar. He just stands up to them. And I think that as Republicans get better at this, then there's a better shot that they're going to be representing the frustrations of the American public. But let me say this. I don't think any Republican ever gets nominated again who is perceived as civility first. I, I think that the, that era is over. And frankly, I think it, that that era should be over because I think that we're long past the notion that the best way to win over people in the middle is by being completely civil or conciliatory, I should say, being completely conciliatory with people who disdain your lifestyle, disdain you, and want to control so many aspects of your life. Well, let's talk for a minute about the media's complicity in this. Again, I... Uh... You know, I, I canceled my subscription to The New York Times because I always knew that they um, leaned left. But during the Trump era, I was genuinely horrified uh, to see the, the front page become uh, editorial. Uh, but the horror, of course, is not that it's an editorial, but that it is pretending still to be journalism. Uh, what do you think? happened in American newsrooms. Is this just exactly what happened in the culture at large? Uh, but it, it is, it's strange to me to have so few dissenters because in the journalistic class, you would expect people who really understood that there are fundamental values about how we do journalism, how we do democracy. I, I see almost no one uh, in the mainstream 
media and the mainstream journalistic classes who really have talked about this issue at all. Well, the dissenters are purged. The people who the people who do talk about these issues like Barry Weiss end up losing their job or, or quitting the New York Times out of, out of essentially being persecuted at a newspaper that she was hired to work at. I think one of the grave mistakes that was made by the country, by conservatives, was 20 years ago, 30 years ago, when people were warning about this stuff in universities and conservatives went, yeah, but when they hit the real world, it'll go away. When they hit the real world, they'll have to pay taxes and they'll have to just engage with the rest of society. Well, what if they left the universities and they just brought those values along with them and then renormalized all of these institutions to mirror the values of the university? And that's what seems to have happened at so many of these major newspapers. And the New York Times is essentially de facto run now by the Nicole Hannah-Jones wing, uh, which is extraordinarily censorious, which which seeks to cancel people routinely, which lies about American history and then wins Pulitzers for it. Uh, and everybody is supposed to just genuflect at the altar of Nicole Hannah-Jones. And if you don't, then you might find yourself out on your butt. Uh, and if you cross even the mildest line, which that line can move at any time, then you will find yourself out. I mean, you can be the, the editorial page editor, James Bennett, and find yourself out of a job because you had the temerity to run a, a pretty generic op-ed by a United States senator. Uh, you can be Donald McNeil and, and be the, the, science, uh, the science writer for the New York Times and find yourself out of a job because on a school trip a while ago, you said to a student, that there were certain uses of the N-word that were not the same as other uses of the N-word. And, and then the newspaper can essentially fire you over that after the sort of groundswell. Again, this comes to the, the pusillanimous nature of a bunch of liberals who run these institutions. So the New York Times was always liberal. It has, it has been liberal for decades. The problem is liberals didn't have the courage of their own convictions in saying to the radicals, listen, again, we may agree with you on a lot of these policies, but you don't get to destroy individual rights and individual freedoms and freedom of the press and the ability to think broadly. You don't get to destroy that in the name of your agenda. But liberals are embarrassed of a lot of those things. Liberals have, have kind of gone along with the woke because they have decided that the woke have a point, which is that they are the beneficiaries of systems of power. And a lot of the editor, like Pinch Solzberger at The New York Times, he thinks to himself, yeah, I am the beneficiary of systems of power. You know, I did inherit this newspaper. I am privileged. And so how can I, a privileged white person, say to Nicole Hannah-Jones that my standards of individual rights are correct while she's arguing that those standards of individual rights are merely a re-enshrinement of the hierarchy that, that gave me my advantage in the first place? There's this really deep level of guilt. Uh, it is linked to what Shelby Steele called white guilt uh, that has pervaded so much of uh, our institutional life. And it means that there's almost a, a waiting and ready surrender caucus inside all these institutions that the, that the woke have, have taken advantage of. You believe in God. I believe in God, the biblical God. Do you have hope uh, that we can get through this as a country and as a culture? And is your is your hope strictly limited uh, to the uh, to the sphere of this world or is your hope uh, anchored uh, in your faith? Well, I mean, I, th I think my hope is always anchored in my faith because God makes promises and God keeps those promises from my point of view. But yeah, you know, as far as kind of hope for 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 the country, uh, I think that Americans are getting tired of this. It's very tiresome. It, it is boring. It is annoying. It is irritating. And so far, there haven't there hasn't been sort of a, a mass movement to reject it. But I think the mass movement is is kind of coming. And, and I, I can't tell you how many people who disagree with me on nearly everything about politics I've talked to lately who will resonate to the messages that I'm saying. Will say, yeah, it is, it is weird that we can't have an open conversation. It is weird that if if they invite me on their shows, that their own audience will get so angry at them that they'll cancel them, right? That, that, that's, that's untenable and it can't be carried forward. That's, the problem is they say it behind closed doors and they actually need to say it openly. You know, what, I've had this experience many times personally where 
people on the left who I'm friendly with uh, will say to, is what I call the happy birthday problem. On my birthday, I, I very often receive happy birthday messages from very prominent people who are sort of liberal or left-leaning. Always text. No one will say happy birthday publicly on Twitter. And the reason they won't say happy birthday publicly on Twitter is this would be acknowledging that a person they disagree with was born of woman. And you can't acknowledge the humanity of somebody who disagrees with you on politics or all of your fans might think that you're sympathetic to their political positions. Now, this sort of unpersoning, I mean, really is like a form of unpersoning, is is pretty dramatic and pretty astonishing. And so what we need is for people who consider themselves good-hearted liberals to actually say this sort of stuff out loud. I mean, I talk about in the book, I talk about in the introduction, a situation that, that is kind of a perfect example of this. There's a guy named Mark Duplass. Mark Duplass is an actor, writer, and producer, uh, in, uh, and director in Hollywood, made a bunch of indie films. And he emailed our company uh, maybe three years ago, four years ago, and uh, he wanted to do some sort of documentary or, or show having to do with the Second Amendment. And he said, I want to talk to somebody who's pro-Second Amendment so I can really get that perspective. And I thought, you know, that's nice. You know, it's nice that somebody in Hollywood actually cares enough to talk to somebody who likes the Second Amendment about these issues. So he came in. We spent about an hour and a half together. We talked through the Second Amendment. Very nice guy. And as he's leaving, I said, listen, for your own good, don't tweet that you were here. Right? Just like as a friendly piece of advice. You tweet it. You're going to get a bunch of nonsense. There's just no reason to do it. You know, you got what you needed. And it's nice to meet you and, and all the rest. Well, a couple of weeks later, Duplass decided that he was going to you know, be a nice guy. And so he went on Twitter and he tweeted out something like, I may disagree with most of what Ben Shapiro has to say, but he's a, a good-hearted person who once did a favor for me for no other reason than to be nice. He got hit so hard by the left that he pulled down the tweet and instead put up a new tweet saying, I did not realize my own sin in doing this. this is a Maoist struggle <laughs> session tweet. I didn't realize you know, that I, I don't side with racism and xenophobia and bigotry, and I'm still in the process of learning. And this sort of stuff happens all the time. But here's the truth. All Duplass had to say is, right, so... Right. When, when people came after him, all people had all that's all he had to do was say, and right. So I'm friendly with him. I just said I don't agree with everything he says. But so what? And by the way, there are people on the left who are brave enough to do that. I have lots of leftist guests who come on my Sunday special, which is this sort of hour long genteel interview show. And, you know, a, a lot I warn virtually everybody on the left who comes on the show, they'll get blowback. And the ones who come on the show say, I don't care. And they, do, they get the blowback and then it's over. But that, that's the thing that's so amazing about all of this is it's a mirage. It's a mirage, like the notion that, that these people, this small group of people should be able to cancel anybody or that a broad majority of Americans care enough about your old Facebook post that you should lose your job or put your business in danger is insane. And all it takes is, is somebody shouting that the emperor has no clothes, particularly somebody from the left shouting the emperor has no clothes for this to end pretty quickly. I always think of, of Reagan um, at the, uh, the Brandenburg Gate when he gave the famous speech and the line, Mr. Gorbachev tear down this wall. The reason I think of that is it strikes me as a moment of, of real leadership in that the folks at Foggy Bottom told him over and over and over again, you cannot say that. You must not say that. Um, and he said it. In other words, he didn't listen to them, even though they tried very, very hard. He simply did it. Uh, there's some blowback. And then it's over. And then he's recognized as a hero and a leader and the demons tremble because when you have a, a leader like that, a leader like that can defeat um, communism, can, can, can defeat uh, the, the, the evil totalitarianism that was in the world, the Soviet empire. It seems to me that individually, we used to have a, a class of American who understood that and who kind of lived like that. And that the reason we are where we are is because most people today, I think, would say, well, 
if the folks at Foggy Bottom say I can't say this, I better not say it. Um, what do you think has changed fundamentally? And I, I guess, let me say, I think it is the 50 years of, of Hollywood singing a different song. We don't have Frank Capra films or uh, John Wayne films. We have a different kind of film that exalts the anti-hero uh, and on and on and on. And that, that has had a powerful cultural effect on what people think it means to be an American. So that's my, my guess. What do you say? So I think it's a few factors. One is uh, something you mentioned earlier, which is the decline of religion. So religion posited that there were these sort of objective moral standards and that so long as you weren't actively harming somebody, then you really should consider them a member of your community. You should use things like forgiveness. Essentially, what we're talking about right now in, in what the left is engaging in, this authoritarian movement, uh, is, is a religion without God. It, it has been for a long time. It's a, it's, a, it's a pagan form of religion in which you must be answerable to an ever-moving mob uh, that changes the lines at will, and you must continually make sacrifices to this mob, otherwise you won't be declared a part of the mob. And so there's a religious impulse that's being filled with a sort of shifting authoritarian politics that's, that's really ugly. So I think that on a cultural level, that's a huge problem. Uh, I think that a decline of family has been a serious issue here because, again, families tend to bind, uh, and when you have collapse of families, that tends to fragment. Social media has really exacerbated this because social media, it used to be that if you wanted to put together a mob of terrible people, you actually had to go out and seek the mob. You had to go door to door and be like, you know what? This thing happened. Let's go take advantage of this and do this terrible thing. Let's go lynch that guy because we're horrible people. Let's get together and do that. And you'd have to coalesce around a particular cause. Now you basically have a mob online that's just waiting to coalesce. It's like it's, it's a mob that's just milling around in the town square waiting for the latest. It's, it's a lot easier to mobilize and a lot easier to find because it's all international and, and national in scope. Right? All it takes is somebody to tweet one bad thing and suddenly you've got 10,000 people tweeting at them about how terrible they are and calling up their boss and telling them that they ought to lose their job. That obviously is a major factor. And, you know, when you talk about Hollywood and, and moral narratives, there's something there, too. But I, I don't think that it, it necessarily is a focus on a quote, quote unquote antihero. I think it's the nature of what Hollywood considers heroic has changed. Heroes in our films now, it's not that they're so much anti-heroes as they're victims. The people who we're supposed to feel for are people who are victims. Victimization and heroism have become exactly the same thing. So normally, in, in sort of a hero's journey, Joseph Campbell paradigm, if you're telling a story, the hero is a person who might be victimized by circumstance. That's an obstacle, and then they overcome it, right? But they're also supposed to be fighting on behalf of something higher and something of value. Well, in our society, because it, as I keep coming back to, authenticity is the key value. A person is victimized anytime their authenticity is threatened, which means them, quote unquote, living their most authentic life is what makes them heroic. And this has bled over into our politics to the extent that every hero from our past, we're tearing down statues of George Washington, but we're erecting statues of George Floyd. Now, I, I you know, I, I think that what happened to George Floyd is awful, just as everybody thinks that what happened to George Floyd is awful. But the notion that George Floyd was a civil rights hero like even Rosa Parks or MLK or something is insulting to MLK and Rosa Parks. The man was a victim of police brutality. And that, that does not mean that you build statues of, of victims of police brutality while tearing down statues of George Washington, who apparently we are all significantly better than. That contrast is kind of telling, even if you believe in the statue of George Floyd, the, the contrast is pretty telling. I have to uh, ask, it seems to me that the reason so many people are, are foolishly drifting along with the with the zeitgeist, so to speak, it's because they don't seem to have the knowledge. Uh, they were not educated to understand where this always goes. When you think about what happened in the French Revolution, you, you can look at the, the, the cultural revolution in China under Mao. 
it's so horrific when you see where it goes, what it does to human beings. Anybody with any knowledge of those things would see that where we are now, that is exactly where it goes. Why do you think people, adults, uh, many of them Ivy League educated adults, seem to have no idea of these parallels? So first of all, I think a lot of them think they're the good guys, right? Yeah, it, it, true, true good authoritarianism has never been tried is, is sort of the, the ideology on campus, right? Yeah, well, sure, in, in the past, these kinds of things have been used for bad. I mean, we're not in favor of Maoist struggle sessions, but our kind of Maoist struggle sessions, those are different, and those are kind of good. So that, well, that's sort of one. But, we, but does anybody believe that Mao thought he was evil or that the people uh, prosecuting his agenda were evil? Everyone, Hitler thought he was a good guy. The Nazis right. thought they were doing good. Is there any question of that? No, I mean, and, and I think that that's exactly the point. The people who are doing this stuff right now think that they're doing this stuff on behalf of the angels. So I, I think that's part of it. I think for people in the middle, the, the notion that the free and prosperous life that we've all been granted, because we have been building on the shoulders of giants for generations now, the, that sort of free, prosperous, you know, incredibly blessed life that we all live. I mean, the greatest privilege in the world is to be born in American. I mean, that, that's an unbelievable privilege. And that's true historically. It's true contextually right now. It's true for all time and in all places. This is like an amazing place to, to be and a place to live. The, the, but because we take that for granted, you know, the, the verse from, from the Bible comes to me from, from Deuteronomy that Yeshurun got fat and kicked, Yeshurun got fat and kicked. And that, that, that really is what it is. We're fat, we're happy, we're lazy, we have all the things that we want at the click of a button. And that's the way norm, normality is, right? That normal life is what we have right now, which means that any movement from normal can only be good. It can be only toward utopia. See, this is just the baseline. This is where things, the natural status of things is. And you hear this from folks on the left sometimes. I saw a quote from Nelson Mandela that I thought was like one of the dumbest quotes I've ever seen, where he said something like, prosperity is the natural state of man. Poverty is not the natural state of man. I just thought to myself, that is ridiculous. But that, that is the philosophy of so many people living in the United States, that all the good things that we have in the United States are not the product of the systems they despise. It is not the product of the individual rights we hold dear. It is just the natural state of the world. It's the individual rights and it is the systems that have brought us all the bad things, right? So all the things that are, that are uniquely good about America are not unique, they're universal. All the things that are universally bad and also apply in America are actually unique to America. That seems to be the, the upside down philosophy. Everywhere I go, I bump into people from Cuba or uh, from the former Soviet Union. They see what we're talking about with crystal clarity. Uh, the only reason I think I see it maybe a little bit more clearly than my my friends is because my mother grew up in East Germany. My father grew up uh, in Greece when the communists tried to take over after the Second War. They raised me without trying very hard to know how particularly wicked and cruel communism is. Uh, and therefore, even without thinking, to love America simply because freedom is the antithesis of that. Uh, but I am kind of amazed at what you say, that Americans somehow are so myopic, so blessed, that they think this is normal. They think that what we've always had here is normal, rather than a wild uh, idea that almost shouldn't logically have succeeded but did, and so we should be grateful and we should keep the republic um, do you do you have hope that because of where we are now, people are waking up to this who'd been asleep to it? So I think they are. Uh, you know, the the other day, uh, I was speaking with somebody who wildly disagrees with me. That is a is a professor at a major university campus, uh, and came up to me and said, "I disagree with everything that you say, but you know, I want to have a conversation with you about it. I think my students should have a conversation with you about it." I was I was shocked by it. 
Uh, I, I'm getting notes from people who I've never gotten notes from before who are saying, yeah, you know, I used to I used to really disagree with all the things that you are saying, and I still disagree with a lot of your politics, but I got to tell you, I too am sort of living in fear. There are a lot of people living in fear, and when you realize that the people living in fear are the majority, not the minority, and by poll data, that's actually correct. Okay, every single American political group, with the exception of people who consider themselves far left, says that they are uncomfortable to say what they think in public. Every single political group, that includes mainstream liberals. So that means that there is a broad majority of people who are feeling really uncomfortable at this moment. And there are only two ways out of the discomfort. One is complete surrender, which you are seeing from a lot of people. And the other is a consolidation and a pushback. Now, I hope the consolidation and pushback comes in a positive and useful way. One of the big problems with, with the sort of authoritarian push that we're seeing from the left is politics is extraordinarily reactionary and reactive. And you could get a reaction that looks a lot uglier than a sort of restoration of classical liberalism and, and, a, and a sort of adherence to individual rights. You could see something that looks a lot more like you're using the auspices of government and corporations to cram down your own values. Well, we're not going to go neutral. We're going to go directly the other way, right? All the tools that you just created for, for yourself, we're now going to use against you, right? And that would end very similarly. It would end with the breakup of the country. You know, there may be people who, who are happier on the right at that prospect than, than people on the left, but people on the left are happy at the prospect right now. You know, the, the question really, I think, that for a lot of Americans to ask themselves is, do you wish to live in this country with these people? And if the answer is still yes, then you're going to have to make the concession that neutrality ought to be the default when it comes to our institutions, as opposed to those institutions being weaponized. But again, the harder the left pushes, the harder the right's going to push back. And it's going to come out in some pretty ugly ways. Uh, we just got a few minutes left. Talk for a second about your chapter uh, on how science defeated actual science. And, you know, you have a TM uh, next to the first science. So how is it that science, quote unquote, defeated actual science? So science itself, like normal science without the TM, is a process. Right? It's a scientific process. And, and every scientist will tell you this. There's no institution called the science. There's no person who is the repository of the science, right? There is just a scientific process that comes up with conclusions that are either verified or not verified and are subject to being overturned over time as we gain new knowledge, new data. Okay, that's normal science. Then there is the science, right? Every time you heard during the COVID pandemic, listen to the science. Or every time that you heard during the global warming, all the global warming debates, you have to follow the science. They don't mean follow the data. They don't mean follow the process of science making. What they mean is there's this guy over here. You need to agree with him. And if you don't agree with him, then you are a science denier. And you saw that absolutely crystal clear when it came to COVID, for example, where the science originally said you're not supposed to get together with each other in, in large numbers, right? Certainly shouldn't go to church. You shouldn't even have outdoor church. You shouldn't go to lockdown protests. All of this is dangerous because this thing is passed in airborne fashion. And you said to yourself, OK, well, either that's true or it's not. But let's assume that it's true for a moment. And then within a couple of weeks, they switch to, well, as long as you're protesting for George Floyd, you can be in very large numbers of people. We're going to pretend this is no risk. In fact, you have a public health duty to go and protest for George Floyd in the middle of a pandemic, 20 million strong. It's necessary. And you had scientists saying this. You had scientists saying it is a public health duty to do all of this. You saw it again with regard to the trenching out of the vaccines. So it was pretty obvious to anybody who followed the data that the best way to trench out the vaccines was to give it to the older people first. The older people were the ones who were most at risk by every available metric. There was no other confound that even comes close. People who were older were the people who were most at risk. And yet there was a push inside the Biden administration to instead tranch out the vaccines on the basis of racial equity, which, by the way, would have ended with more dead black people because you would have been giving a lot of vaccines to young black people and not as many to old black people. And old black people are much more likely to die. So the, all of this was sort of a hijacking of the process of science and the legitimacy that we all feel, right? We all, like science is great because it's subjective. Science is terrific because it has results that you can either see or not see. But the transition away 
from science as a process to science as a body of people who must be listened to at all points, it leads to a couple of very specific problems. One is what I call the ultra crepidarian problem, which is scientists speaking outside their area of expertise. Scientists saying, sure, you know, I'm, I'm an epidemiologist, but now I have some real thoughts about racial justice. Right? That is really silly, and it undermines science, and it leads to a sort of converse, what I call the bleed-over effect, which is where you have people who are political speaking about scientific issues. And this has an impact where scientists start to just infuse politics into their own science. So this leads to weird things like Nature Magazine declaring that there's no such thing as boys and girls, or that you have Scientific American declaring that they're only going to publish papers based on the impact of the papers, right? which is totally anti-science. Or when, when you have great scientists declaring for a certainty that there is no such thing as biological sex and that gender is all in the, in the mind, right? None of this is backed by anything remotely resembling science, but it is backed by the science. And if you don't listen to the science, then this means obviously that you're a science denier and some sort of backwards religious cretin. This is always, uh, well, it's, it, it's horrifying me to think that this is happening in America and in the West. Uh, and again, because I wrote Bonhoeffer and I'm familiar uh, with that period, uh, it's exactly what happened in Germany. There was Aryan science. National socialists insisted that there's this kind of new science and we don't want to listen to the old science anymore. We don't want any Jewish science. We want pure Aryan science. And so they started pushing preposterous racial theories and so on and so forth. How is it possible, uh, Ben, that this is happening in the West right now? I mean, it's it's astonishing to me that science is undermining science. Scientists are undermining science. That journalists have undermined journalism. H- how do we get back uh, to any sense of objectivity in either of those spheres? I mean, I, I think that power is an unbelievable aphrodisiac. And scientists, because they, they understand that they're the most respected people in America, that science is the most trusted institution in America by, by polling data, they understand that this gives them extraordinary power to wield on behalf of the sh- social change that they want to see. And that's really dangerous because that's not what science is here to do. So they are, they're acting outside sort of their area of expertise and outside of their, their actual purview. Uh, and that, that is dangerous stuff. As far as journalism, you see sort of the same thing. You'll, you'll see journalists say things like, you know, it's our job to hold the powerful to account or it's our job to affect social change. No, your job is to explain the facts that are happening right now. That's, that's literally your job. That's, that's the whole thing. And yet journalists have taken upon themselves. We are instruments of social change. We are instruments of making the world a better place. You know, you can make the world a better place by doing your actual job, right? But once you've decided that your, your actual job is not to do your actual job, your actual job is to affect social change and your actual job, you know, your real job, like telling the facts, that comes second to the agenda in the same way for science. Your actual job was to follow the scientific process, but now you've decided your real, deep, important job is to quote unquote, change the world on a social level. Then you can start perverting things to, to meet that. And as you say, I mean, this, this has happened in totalitarian regimes in the past. I mean, the, the, the willingness to overlook basic laws of economics in, in Mao's China leads to the Great Famine. The, the willingness to, to destroy science in, in Soviet Union leads to Lysenkoism, right? All, all of this sort of stuff, there, there's precedent for it. Um, but just because there's precedent doesn't mean that when people feel the, the ring of power, instead of casting it into Mount Doom, they decide, you know what, I'll wear this around for a while and see how it goes. It's, uh, it's way too much fun to talk to you, Ben Shapiro. Congratulations on the book, The Authoritarian Moment. Uh, let me ask you two questions. You have five seconds to answer each one. First question, what's capital of North Dakota? Uh, Bismarck, right? Correct, correct. Second question, will you appear with me on my uh, TV radio program very soon? Oh, I'd be happy to do that. I appreciate the invite. That was so easy. 
Ben Shapiro, congratulations on the authoritarian moment and on all that you're doing. Hope to catch up with you again soon. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. Be sure to check out our Book Notes Plus podcast. This week, our guest is veteran Canadian journalist Ken Cuthbertson. He talks about the life and work of American writer John Gunther, author of the popular Inside Book series that provided an in-depth look at countries around the world. Find it and follow wherever you listen to podcasts. Podcasts.